In the last Tech to Transform podcast of 2021, Mantis MD Eleanor Willock talks to Liam Cahill, National Advisor on Health and Social Care and an expert in digital organisational change. They discuss the digital NHS mindset, whether ICS regulation will solve the innovation gap, and the exact point at which citizen data should become patient data. Take a listen. Hi everybody and welcome to the Mantis PR Tech to Transform podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have a special guest today. I want to introduce you to Liam Cahill. Hi Liam. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for coming on. You're our last guest before Christmas. <laughs> sort of a last minute Christmas present maybe. Exactly. I, I, I mean you're number nine in the advent calendar door aren't you? It's, it's uh, Thursday the 9th of December. So um, before we start perhaps you could tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose it's a bit of a long and winding road, really. But I I spent 17 years in the NHS. Uh, I was consulting around the NHS for a number of years and then ended up taking on what was um, back in 2010, um, a a major programme around cost efficiencies, which kind of grew and grew and grew to the point where we ended up um, like basically working as an independent social enterprise that span out of the NHS, working with 97% of the commissioners in England, um, most of the other devolved nations and more or less writing most of the prescribing medicines prescribing policy that was that was happening in all different kinds of areas um sort of uh, very very proud at the time that i think at this particular time sort of on a on a fag packet we, we enabled the nhs to help save a couple of billion and that the organization is still going strong now what i do is i work in two areas i work especially with the nhs and frontline providers so i am uh, on and off an advisor for nhs england improvement around digitizing their community program uh, i led some work with x at the beginning of covid uh, i work very closely with a number of frontline pro- providers in community care um so the community service providers not the other different definitions of community and i run an accelerator that basically helps them to kind of take their digital journey and do their digital mindset i suppose lastly i also have since kind of setting up my my current organization I have mentored a whole range of health tech companies big and small from sort of C to sort of series A and B and um, <clears throat> also I um, have advised some venture companies and work with those so uh, I, I like to think that I'm right on the intersection between health and social care and, and you know trying to sort of help to see how we can get the system close to technology and technology close to the system really. You sound like the perfect guest to round off what has been a very interesting year for health and social care. And that kind of plays quite into the first question I wanted to ask you, which is obviously there has been some huge announcements in our area, hasn't there, in the past couple of weeks. And one of them has been about the um, the new involvement um, with NHS England um, rolling NHS DNX inside um, its organisation. And I was wanting to know, I mean, I think it's it's such a fantastic move in lots of ways because it really shows how important digital and digital first is going to be to the NHS and hopefully to social care as things move closer together. Um, what differences are you thinking it's going to make and um, where should the first focus be? <laughs> so um, I think firstly, I suppose to zoom out, it is a massive change and it does it does to a certain degree make sense. But I think we need to probably acknowledge that the NHS is probably the first institution to continuously commit to design thinking in their consistent political divergence and convergence over a number of years. Yeah. Like realistically, I think, you know, 
it, there are a lot of good things in this, but I think actually what we're talking about to a certain degree is that the NHS is that national institutions really struggle, I suppose, in terms of they 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 split up, and this also counts locally as well, but they split up into smaller entities, then it's fragmented and varied, and they, they struggle to be able to, you know, they've got duplication of work. And then they all come together and then they slow down and they struggle because they're consultative and they can't move as quick. And then they do it again. So I think, you know, whether that's a natural cycle or not, I think that's probably the first thing that right realistically we've had a period of the nhs kind of splitting into different entities and now we're pulling it back into the center i've got i suppose a, a non-contextual and a contextual answer eleanor like i think the first one is is look um there is a high risk and there's a high risk because this has always been the case that we're going to see a period of entrenched navel gazing and right. i suppose realistically you know, like national bodies do fall foul of this, and I've seen it firsthand. You know, obviously they're very politically oriented, and the politics around this has changed as well in terms of what the what the well, what the new legislation says about the national institutes and the proximity towards politics. Um, my concern is that we're it's actually there's a, there's a risk that we're in contrast to that we're sort of contradicting the I suppose the the area of change that we're seeing in the Harvard Business Review and that the major sort of thinkers are saying around how organisations should be should be focused. So my concern is that whilst I think sentimentally it's a good idea and it makes sense to reduce duplication, one of the problems could be if we start to see that they um, start to kind of try and spend loads of time consolidating about how they fix different topics like I think you know like if we take for example some of the major themes you want to see so carbon reduction and like digital improvement and estates and place-based care these are all theoretically aligned but actually they're going to have to do a lot of thinking about how they design teams is it in the context where you know is it technology teams that suffuse into this or is it tech first and I suppose my initial concern is that one it's that at the time when the Harvard Business Review and leading thinkers are saying that we need to start disaggregating organizations into more fluid micro enterprises, the NHS is going to potentially risk creating the biggest organization chart that we've seen. Um, I think in terms of process as well, like to, to, I suppose NHSX has really, really come to the fore in terms of using design thinking to center its methodology. And I think it's been really good, potentially sometimes too much when they're trying to hit systems problems but the NHS England and NHS England structure is often around systems thinking now ideally what we'd like to see is a blend of these two things that could come through and my concern is that one will start to dominate based on politics and that they will miss the opportunity to blend you know being able to think innovatively and connected to the edges versus thinking in the center and trying to presuppose all problems so I suppose that's you know and I think this is something that all large organizations are having to to to, to contend with and I just really hope that they will they will really think about how they do this I'm sure a lot of consultancies are going to be coming in to help them with the answer on this but realistically I don't see how we're not going to have six to nine months of, of distracting stuff at a critical time in the NHS so I just hope that it won't distract really so two questions from from mm. then firstly where where is the connect at the moment between NHS DNX and the average NHS employee. Now, what I'm trying to say by that mm. is the general, you know, general public, our friends and family think of the NHS and they don't think of somebody who works for, for D or X. They don't no. think of that aspect at all. But does the community nurse or the consultant or um, the, the hospital receptionist think of 
um, NHS Digital and NHSX as in any way connected to what they do? Uh, well, the short answer is no. The longer answer is, is that, you know, nationally NHS, all of these different topics has very different ways that things are being done. So if, for example, we look at sustainability, staff who are working in sustainability roles locally might have quite a good connection to individual teams. It might be that tech staff and digital staff in organisations are, you know, are, are quite connected to certain parts of NHSX or NHSEI who are doing digital things, you know, um, like no, ju just to say, I'll go give a particular example, sort of a shout out to the, the ageing well and community digitisation team in NHSEI, who I think are absolutely fantastic and they are constantly on twitter they're doing promotion around things they're gathering and sharing dissemination information and i can see that they've got such a massive following of nurses for example who are really interested in this that's okay. a great example but in terms of nhsd no not really i don't i think and I, I, there's a lot i think if you ask the average person what nhs digital did they'd say digital with a question mark on the end they wouldn't really know and I think that's part of the problem do you, so like me do you think that there is work to be done in terms of uh, public policy and communications about their critical role in what's happening to our health and social care system uh, well, yes and no. Like, I think it would be impossible to, for, for every member of staff to have a close connection to a national entity like, you know, I'm, I'm not for, you know, senior org charts, I suppose. But I think, to be honest, it's not necessarily about what, but how, to be totally honest. I think the how should be that actually, if we take the NHS national institutions as a as a leadership body rather than a coming up with the answer and sending it down to everybody and we actually take again more contemporary thinking then ideally if their activities are entirely centric and enabling then that can be achieved a lot more and yes that's possible but at the end of the day they don't have the capacity to be able to work with everybody in that kind yeah. of way really so I think we probably need to there's a balance I suppose there's a bit of an answer really I think um you mentioned consultants earlier, and this was going to be my second point. Um, I think that the concept of consultancy into the public sector gets an extremely bad rap. Um, and uh, it should be more of a healthy relationship externally and internally that consultants are a good thing um, for change. Um, how do you think that that... Um, is going to affect the um, the impact of this um, roll up into from NHS X and D into NHS England. So, okay, like there's there's good and bad forms of consultancy, right? And you know there are certain consultancy organisations that have really great people who do really great work. Um, the problem with consultancy, and I think if we look at the history of consultancy, what we would have is some very well-paid, very interesting thought leaders who would come and do stuff. And that would get translated down into repeatable elements that they would try and crowbar into their clients to be able to make sure that they could standardize offerings towards clients, yeah. right? So effectively, all that we would be doing is we would be kind of offshoring strategic leadership and decision making that actually needs to move forward so I think there's absolutely arguably I'm a consultant but I, I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that consultancy is oriented so it's fitting within the meaning of what's yeah. going on right and we need to basically not have graduates who are basically being oversold using spreadsheets and that model that model is going to die I don't think consultancy has a future in that sense so if for example we take consultancy in the form of them coming in to do really good design thinking work and trying to use these kind of methods methodologies to be able to support the system then it's less about what the thought leaders in those consultancies are doing and more about making sure that they can bring in extra resource to be able to take people through a process which is which is endorsed so I think it's about the how they do consultancy and how they engage that said 
for systems issues i think it's also like you know you, you probably do need an element of that to be able to kind of do stakeholder engagement and mapping but i think it's just around making sure that those who are employing consultants aren't just going this person knows all the answers and can you come in and tell the answers and to be honest i've been foul of people come well i haven't accepted it but i've had people who've kind of come to me and said you know loads about this can you just write down the answer for us so you know and and generally i've had to push back and make sure that it's meaningful really yeah okay I think that's a very I think that's a very smart point. I feel like um consultant like like PR consultants is mm. can't just go in and tell our clients exactly what to do. Mm. It needs to be that we learn together and, and help them understand the direction of travel and how that experience can be repeatable to have better impact later on. And mm. you know, um the best working relationships always get to the conclusions together, don't they? Yeah. So um, the other big, um, well, the other big issue that uh, is facing our industry at the moment is um, the direction of travel for ICS. Mm. Mm. And um, we've been thinking and writing a lot about this at Mantis for our clients recently. And it's such a huge topic. And I did, I did see a fantastic uh, example um, given by um the nhs um on linkedin the other day where they gave a very clear sort of pathway through the ics journey for a particular trust and how it was working with um its mm. local authority to, to to pass on various aspects of care and it really struck me that um i feel like in the journeys for um the client my clients customers that we need to work for we need to find the smaller connecting stories that are really working mm. and show how they could eventually be connected together with other integrated care to make that bigger journey, you know, sort of connecting mm -hmm. the links in the chain rather than thinking of an A to Z and trying to connect it all the way through to start off with. Mm. Where do you, where do you see the, the, um, the direction of ICS at the moment and how, government and policy are going to work together to make it happen. Okay, so uh, isn't the, the, the answer to every question is it's complex, right? Particularly in health and social care. Um, so I think firstly, look, the Lansley reforms were a bit of a dog's dinner and because of Brexit, we got we got stuck with a system that we couldn't legislatively reform. There's absolutely need for legislative reform and we need to move in the direction of, you know, bringing health and social care together. We need to have entities working together and we need to stop fragmentation at a local level. So absolutely what we had at the moment was a legacy. We continue to have a legacy set of policy funding, you know, um, governance workarounds that need to be fixed. So without a shadow of a doubt, it's absolutely something that needs to happen. Secondly, I think in terms of the the, the, the aligned PCN form formation, it's it's a good first step. Although to be honest, COVID has kind of it's meant that for, you know, for, for those entities that it's been a bit slower. I've got I've got concerns. Um, I'm going to try and make sure I speak positively. <laughs> like, I've got some I've got some concerns, but I think there's also opportunity. So my concern is, is that I think a lot of the narrative at the moment is increasingly, increasingly consolidative in its mindset. Right yeah, yeah, now, yeah. realistically, let's just place where we are at the moment. If we look at the long term plan, we have the biggest need for system transformation that we've ever had. The economic necessities are all there. We are entering or we're in the, you know, we're very much in the process of entering the fourth industrial revolution, the second machine age. We are entering an entirely new stage for society. And what we just desperately, 
desperately, desperately need is disruption and innovation to happen. I've worked with CCGs and I've worked with some wonderful people. I'm not going to take away from any of their work. But actually, what I've seen in working with some of these institutions is that they are not innovative. And a lot of the entities that are going to be feeding into these, these consolidated organizations are not naturally innovative. Now, as an example, let's take digital, right? So what we, let, let's, um, there is increasingly a bit of a mindset that the ICS will manage digital for the area. And that makes logical sense. But the problem is, is there's a real risk that this is at the cost of innovation and disruption. And we've learned from the outside world that big institutions don't innovate when they, when they work in a holistic way. And so I think we really need to try and look at making sure that the fabric isn't that there's just these big chunks of stuff that does care and decides on things yeah. but actually we've got smaller petri dishes where we can make the disruption happen because actually yeah, if we take the vanguard models so, yeah. yeah and I, I suppose i'm slightly concerned that realistically what will happen is this will be massively distracting as it always is like if we just look at like we had a two years where the landley reforms the system was just trying to get its ducks in order right and we're going to see this again at one of the most critical times of the nhs and so realistically they're going to go into safe zone which is let's make decisions as quickly as possible and get things in place and then we take the love child of acutes and commissioning bodies who are kind of dominating this, who work in a very similar kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's an, it's an antidote to unmanageable fragmentation and variation. I can see the upside, but I've got a real, I've got a real concern about innovation in, and how actually we're going to be able to small sample iterate and test things in these big systems, really. And I'm seeing this playing out now that organizations who have more innovative ideas, for example, for the Unified Tech Fund, just aren't getting airtime because they're trying to do major system things, but understandably that, for example, address elective recovery crisis. So if I could just add one more point, I suppose, about how these organizations orient themselves as well because i think one of the biggest opportunities that we have is you know you mentioned user-centered design is that we try and avoid this being tokenistic so yeah. What we could end up with is you've got a group of people who sit there, they presuppose the solutions and they say, let's have a product. And what we'll do is we'll co-design it or co-produce it with a patient, right? That's already a massive presupposition in the chain. We've got a national body who says they should be doing these things, a local entity saying this is what we should be doing, and then go and prove how it should be designed. That means that we're not really getting user-centered design and design thinking because we're not integrating it into our organization. And to be honest, this is part of the exec program that I run to try and take on some of the status quo ways of working that they do. Because quite often, if we still have senior layers who make decisions and then ask for it to be proven, we've already entirely undermined the design thinking approach that we want to see right. in user-centered okay. design. So this needs to span not just projects, but the, the dominant thinking and power in these organizations, and it needs to be centric around this. If we don't take advantage of this opportunity, then it's going to be tokenistic and we're going to see tokenism like we've seen time and again in the NHS. So a very long answer, but I think there's a, like unpacking this. There's so many different areas that, that where there's opportunity yeah. and concern, really. So the, the legislation should be more about a mandate to innovate I think we should see a model I think we should see proof of innovation like if I take East London as an example like East London is an area that I've got a lot of faith in because um, the East London Trust has Care City Care City is a subsidiary entity that works as social enterprise a really exciting organization because they have a petri dish to be able to try new models and feed it into the system without waiting for the big part of the organization to do this 
we need examples like this at all local levels where we've got skunk works, we've got ways that we're trying things and feeding it through to be able to scale locally that can accept in a well-governed way a bit more risk. And this might be smaller providers and organisations like social enterprises if they have them, it might be other different kinds. But like the, the, one of the questions, and I'm, I'm working with NHSEI at the moment to kind of ask this of some of the regions and the ICSs are just around like, well, what are you utilizing locally around innovation, for example, in community to, to make this happen, really? Because we saw a lot of innovation with the vanguards, and that was a great exercise. But effectively, we go exercise over, copy and paste the models, stick them in and deploy them. Yeah. We're missing the point of why one of the reasons why the vanguards were successful, which is that they were so connected and experimental, you know? But that connection and collaboration is something that, in theory, our tech consultancies and, and suppliers could be so could be leading on by helping the organizations find each other in a way oh, it's chicken and egg to be honest because oh, yeah. consultancies have to respond to the tender that they've been asked to do now i've never seen a tender in the nhs that says come and challenge our leadership model and our board level thinking about how we're in and maybe i've just missed them but you know like i have i frontline providers who bring me in to do exactly this but actually come and come and actually see what what in what ways are we undermining the model that we're actually advocating to our staff downwards you know in like because at the moment all of the things that i see that are coming out are we want to reform a service and we want to be that that specific service or that specific product or virtualization or asynchronization to fit this particular thing that's already set up by presupposition a quite a significant amount so like it needs to go a layer up and we need to basically be training our executives and our leaders across the nhs to understand that we have to think differently and that this needs to be ingrained in their boards have you this is a bit of an aside but have you ever done a pitch where you've gone in and challenged challenged the status quo to that level or challenged the thinking yeah. to that level and 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 won their attention yeah, that's that's exactly that's like before I set up my accelerate. That's exactly what my consultancy did. I said I only work with. So I'd go in, I'd speak to the leadership team, I'd sit down with them, I'd say, look, this is the reason that your organisation is going to fail at digital, and it's not to do with the technology you're selecting. It's to do with all of these all of these things that you're doing. In the leadership course that I'm going to be doing, I have ten chief execs and finance directors who are going to be spending a year with me starting to undo the status quo to work out why this is the case and this was based off me going in and to be honest I was like <laughs> massive imposter syndrome when I was doing it but going in and saying look you you're desperate for digital I'm going to tell you the things that you guys should actually be focusing on so you don't undermine it you know and I could spend 45 minutes talking to you Eleanor, about how it plays out but but this is exactly and so the, the frontline providers that I've been brought in to do it's been about trying to start grassroots movements and enablement and empowerment and trying to take it away from the center and trying to change the way that they think and it really challenges leaders and boards because it's it means they have to immerse themselves in complexity and the acceptance that they can't predict everything and that everything is not predictable and mechanical in nature and that human change is is very different and we, that we need to have a navigational approach rather than a precision and planning approach you know and this really challenges but because there's always those leaders particularly later in their career who say well it's always been done like this why would we do it differently like what's the evidence that proves that experimenting works well the evidence is that the most valuable companies in the world use this day to day to be successful right but in the nhs you know well, often they say well can you give me the precision and precise answer that tells me so i tend to so my work over the last sort of four years has been trying to help develop some of those examples and models so other leaders can see that it is possible and that it is very sensible to do really so yeah 
Now, not taking away from your role or my role, but is there, should tech vendors be introducing themselves to the NHS in the way that you would introduce your offering rather than saying, here's our product or service, it's better than the one you've got. Hmm. Problems it can solve. Should they be talking more on that level about how to change the way innovation is done and their product or service be one of the answers? So, what I'm saying is, would tech firms be taken more seriously if they talked on that level of consultancy rather than just about their tech? So, okay, I suppose I could say yes. I could say you could do that, but realistically, I, I know so many tech companies across the industry, right? You know, including some of the bigger ones. Like I'm not going to like some of the really big suppliers that work with the NHS still do not have like it, it's very easy for me to say yes because I've spent years in the nuances and complexity of a very complex system. And so I have the ability to do this. Often when I work with tech companies, they don't necessarily even understand the differences between the parts and they have different commissioning models and who decides about what. So I could say yes. And do you know what? If they've got that level of understanding and insight within their organizations, then yes. But the problem could be is they could try and bring disruption and not get that, for example, those leaders they're talking to, that they're absolutely missing the point. Because realistically, you know, the 101 of the 101 of sales and marketing, right, is you've got to understand your customer and what their wants and needs are. I like a massive diva, went in and said, look, I will only work with you if you share this philosophy, but I can tell you certain things, you know, and I was willing to turn down 10 organizations to find the right one, because this is a, a mission. It's a social mission for me. Okay. As a consultancy, as a, as a tech company, a consultancy company, I don't think they necessarily have that orientation. I would love it if they did, and they had that knowledge and orientation. But realistically, if you're on a burn rate, and you're, you need to get a, a contract before your next round it would be highly inappropriate me for me to say bring your pirate towards the nhs and try and say all of this stuff if you don't truly understand it and to be honest if you do then you like the, the people in tech companies who genuinely understand the nhs they tend to make headway because they understand the nhs right right yeah yeah i agree with you there okay so um just looking through my list of questions because we've got um, only limited time, sadly, before you have to go back into your door number nine and I have to open door number 10 on my <laughs> um, One of the questions I had is um, in terms of the, the digital mindset, mm. what we sort of alluded to it earlier, but what more can health and social care to be doing to support and train its workforce? So, um, for example, are we still at grassroots level? Obviously, things like smartphones and tablets are widespread for consumers. One of the, you know, really dry, crusty angles that um, I try and avoid um, putting in any of our client messaging is, is, is the angle about um, the consumerization of, of IT and, and business services, particularly for local mm. government. It's, it's a bit of a, a dead duck. But when it comes to digital through the front line, should the NHS and um, local authorities be looking more into how digital their frontline staff can be? Like, should the job descriptions be altered for care, care workers? Should there be a level of digital literacy, for example? Oh, 
you said the word job descriptions. I'm going to have to not go on a tangent on that. I'm, I, I'm against job descriptions because I think oh, it's, redu- right. it's reductionist and it forces people into roles rather than being human beings. And I think actually, like realistically, the biggest thing that we need to do, and I don't want to take a, I don't want to take a, a shot at some of the national policy, particularly since I work with these organisations, but I, I've got a real concern that we still have an orientation that we that the training and that the support we provide for personal development is around giving people training programs about how to do stuff. So digital literacy as a concept, right? Literacy as a concept, right? If we take apart what literacy means, it means learning to read something, right? Now, at the end of the day, what we don't really need to do, we do need to do it. We need to train people to use systems, but actually we're going into the next industrial revolution, right? And what we need to do instead is to be able to train people to develop their, I, I, I hesitate to use the term, their softer skills, right? What we need is we need to help them to be innovating more and collaborating and ideating and knowing how to connect with meaning and to develop, you know, to be weaponizing curiosity and asking questions. These are the things that we need to have in organizations. And right now, most training goes into most orientation around this goes in towards training people to be able to do stuff so keeping them in the box that they're in at the moment right rather than learned experiences because we need like we talk all the time about the fact that we want like organizations say all the time they just go oh just we're not getting any innovative innovative ideas from our front line right it's because they don't practice what they preach and and because at the end of the day to give learned experiences we need to give people a chance to safely fail and to try things and to iterate and uh, pixar has a really great um, term for this which is basically ugly ugly babies right because what they found is that people were having really early ideas in their organization and they weren't fully formed and they weren't nurtured and they hadn't had a chance to grow and evolve and they just got crushed and then people didn't want to do it again right we see this all the time in the system people try and innovate once they have a horrible experience because of gate ways and processes and lack of understanding about how to do things right and so basically they don't end up getting to it and they have a horrible experience and they don't do it again so what we need to do is we need to create nurturing environments for these ugly babies and to be able to help people to bring ideas because digital is not about being able to use a system it's about people being able to solve problems in real times with tools and technologies and having the right systems that allows them to do that the right culture the right organizational structure that doesn't get in the way and again the right skills and experiences that allows them to internalize how to do this this is a major change away from some of the things that we're telling people to do. And we're not going to succeed at being digital and having a digital workforce unless we really start to think differently about this stuff. One thing I would say, though, is because you mentioned frontline is I think that we actually absolutely have a massive missed opportunity in the workforce, because if I look at the back offices of organisations I work with who often don't have any of these skills in many cases and mm-hmm. the front line, a lot of care is actually in the front line about how it promotes people having these skills. And quite often you speak to a group of nurses and they go, oh, yeah, I'm not digital. And what I've seen in working with some of these frontline services is when they realize they can solve problems for patients in real time using things and come up with solutions. And then you go, this is digital. It's not about you being able to use that massive EPR. It's about you being able to think and innovate and disrupt a way of working and create a new one. This is a digital mindset. And they go, oh, that's great. We've already got these skills because we do this day to day in terms of solving. So we have a massive untapped asset in our workforce. And the problem is, is that we're communicating incorrectly and not helping frontline staff to see that actually digital is not what they think it is. And it's something more different. So we're not doing enough. We can do so much more. And I think if we can really tap into that, we could see such a revolution. When I see frontline services, the penny drop and they realize 
what this means and what they can achieve suddenly you don't need to train them on digital you don't need to sell digital to them they get it and they want more and more and more we need to create that environment because that is what we need in the nhs and that's where innovation is going to come from really so i'm <laughs> off my pedestal for the moment but yes no not at all it um obviously being as you're completely surrounded by uh star wars um memorabilia <laughs> thinking of um, i was thinking of um yoda and and either uh, do or do not there is no try but it actually seems like completely the opposite of uh of that with with digital that yeah totally um i don't think yoda would last five minutes in the nhs I mean, obviously, obviously he's 909 years old, so hopefully he has had some NHS care. But. I actually use Yoda in my slides, and I use his quote, luminous beings we are, not this crude matter. <laughs> I am, um, like you, quite a large Star Wars fan. Um, I'll tell you a secret. Uh, when I was at university, I did classical studies, and um, I wanted to do my final year dissertation on the parallels between the Homeric epics and the Star Wars trilogy. Ooh. And I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> and, it's, and it's one of my deepest regrets. Maybe that will be something I can consider during lockdown 27. That, that's what you've got to do. I'd actually say, actually, like, I know this, this sounds like massive overthinking, but I use Lego Star Wars so much in all of my like visual cartoon like decks that I'm using for presentations. And there's actually real meaning it because there's two things that come out from Lego Star Wars, which is one, we, we can if we have building blocks we can create stuff right you know that's that's the sentiment of lego you can build anything if you know that you and you've got the right building blocks but actually quite often i kind of use the empire to describe the status quo system and the rebel alliance to kind of describe this group of misfits who managed to innovate and come up with answers so i'm all over star wars and legos as as a uh, uh, i suppose as a <laughs> an analogy for okay. how we can reform care I've got to ask you then. Episode, More Star Wars. Episodes, episodes one to four, which mm. character do you most identify with? Oh, I'm definitely Jar Jar Binks, 100%. <laughs> no. Probably um, the greatest innovator in the galaxy. <laughs> That's a good question. I'm going to think deeply on this before answering, I think. Okay, my second random question. Uh, somebody makes you Christmas dinner and there's something that's not on your plate. What is it that, that that you would miss so much from your Christmas dinner that you'd stand up and leave and disgust? That's a, I'd say that's a reductionist question. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But any individual piece that is missing, whether it be Brussels sprouts or carrots or anything like that, it, if it was missing, that it wouldn't be a Christmas dinner, right? I'm yeah. gonna, I'm, my answer is wood for the trees. Oh. I know. We're getting philosophical today, aren't we? We are. Um, <laughs> So let's get even more philosophical in the fairest okay. interoperability. Yeah. Um, is it a bit like innovation and digital, one of those words that not enough people understand the real true meaning of? Yeah, I'd say most of the technical technological concepts that we have at the moment are, are probably could be summarized by exactly those words. Like, you know, like, so like... Uh, I talk, instead of, I suppose, interoperability, I talk about ecosystemization, right? What I say is that effectively our organization is digital, our technology is digital, and what we need to make sure is that things are in the same place and that we're able to connect as many parts as possible. 
often I think when we talk about interoperability, people go, oh yeah, you mean like the data going into the in, into the Lycra record or something like that. Mm-hmm. Interoperability is a con like you talk like we talk about interoperability, but you tell someone who uses Zapier day to day to string parts of their business together or uses, I don't know, like Power Automate to make things happen. And to be, you know, or who builds an API as a service. Like I think we do have a massive disconnect around what interoperability actually enables. But to be totally honest, I think we're limited. And actually, I'm, I'm going to go again. This is a challenge because um, I, I, I kind of uh, we went off down a rabbit hole and didn't discuss around what NHS England and NHS improvement should be doing. Interoperability should be a building block oriented approach to things. And what we need is more building blocks, blocks which have easy ways to be able to connect things together to solve problems. The answer to the NHS is as technology progresses, we have more fluid functional interoperability between systems the problem is is that we are so stuck in duopolistic and monopolistic sort of wrangling with major system suppliers that actually we're not able to functionally provide this and one of the things that i'd really like to see the national bodies do and i know that they're going in this direction is to start taking away a dis- is to start taking a bit of a disaggregation of data my data and my my you know my organization's data like i work i work with frontline providers who are trying to get access to their data so they can use it and you would think they go begging they get charged ridiculous amounts of money to be able to do it because they want to solve a problem for their patients okay. and it's impossible and realistically they are missing a fun like i had a meeting yesterday with a frontline community provider who was trying to see if they can improve their referrals and use robot process automation because they don't have the basic building blocks within a major system who i won't name um what that effectively means for them is they don't have the ability to trigger things and if they can't trigger it they can't start automations there's maybe big workarounds that they could do but they don't have this interop basic level of interoperability that allows them to solve to take advantage of a massive opportunity. So I think we need to change. I think we, we need to have a slightly higher level view around what we're talking about. And to me, what I spend a lot of time talking about is, and I use Microsoft 365 as a good example around, what about if we have a range of things where we can connect two things together and it becomes better than the first thing, the, the two individual things that we have. I think, again, we need to be able to to be able to make sure that the narrative helps people understand what it can be but actually situationally at the moment interoperability is quite limited towards exactly the, the things that i was describing before you know like trying really hard to get something out of a system which is business critical so you know and this needs to be addressed it's out i mean the way you describe it i can really feel your um <laughs> i can really feel your uh, your emotion about tech well the fact that data seems to be almost held to ransom it's it's counter it's counterproductive sometimes um when uh, a, a a provider has the data that the uh, customer needs to become interoperable and there are issues whereby it can't be and that must be immensely frustrating i'm i think you know i did have plans to ask you uh, about whether what I see is the interoperability dream, which is that all public services have access to the same data to help people at the same time. The example I give very frequently is about how if a, if the, um, the fire services are going to an, a call out and they don't know that there's oxygen in the house when they turn mm. up, whereas if they had the same records as local authority do and they knew that there was somebody in the house who had oxygen and if they also knew there was somebody in the house who had mental health issues 
their call out would be possibly a different response. Do you see what I mean? Do yes. yes. How can we how can we get to this level without it being a danger a, a danger to um, I guess data security? Also, without there's that fine line, isn't there, mm. between the public feeling threatened about all this data being available to all these different services and the public being enabled, society being enabled. So. We could probably do another podcast. Oh, yeah, we could spend an hour on this. But let, I, let me give you my take on this, right? So firstly, I think if we're thinking about data, like especially as we start thinking about health and social care are different kinds of services, right? Um, so I suppose if you say, you know, like, is there a time when we'd see complete interoperability between core public data sets, right? My answer would generally be no and that we shouldn't because actually, like, and I am really into blockchain and the concepts of the next internet of everything as it starts to come through. And I think one of the things that we really struggle on that we can actually take a lot of learning from in the blockchain field is around permissions and chains to make sure that we have consistent rules about what can and can't be done. Firstly, this isn't the public sector's data set. This is the citizen's data set. And actually, we're going to see this come through more and more and more. When I start taking, like, if we take the, the, like, I'm such a fanboy of him, but if we take some of the stuff that Eric Topol talks about. There's an amazing podcast, actually, he did with Genomics England, where he talks about genomic data ship and ownership, which is absolutely wonderful. And I, with uh, Chris Wrigley, and I would definitely recommend that anybody listens to it after they've finished listening to all your podcasts, of course, of course. Um, yeah. is, is that, like, it's not their data. And I feel quite passionately that the system's data is my data. It's about my life and my health. And mm -hmm. if we start thinking about the context of health and social care, like I was asked by an organization, a consultancy to try and help support them to think through what the next generation of a, a combined health and social care system would be. Now, realistically, I'm in a care home and I'm taking my medicines. Now, I'm taking my medicines or I'm not taking my medicines, I'm eating, I'm having trouble swallowing, I'm doing all of this. Now, this is until it's a clinical intervention, that is not a patient, that is a citizen. And that individual should effectively, their data should only be provided with the system when this is meaningful. As I, actually, when I was um, leading some of the work in HSX around thinking around medicines, we talked around the um, like what the value of the data would be around care homes and taking, you know, care home round reviews and stuff like that. But realistically, we are not, I'm not a subject of the NHS. I'm a consumer of the NHS and I use yeah. it when I need to. Now, effectively, what we need is good permission systems that sit over the layer that talks about the functionality of like, you know, what we should be able to have. Let's we just go for a clinical interaction, right? My day-to-day -day life data and my tracking of different things, which we'll be doing as personalized medicine becomes bigger and bigger, becomes part of a day-to-day -day thing, which is walled for me. It's got a walled garden and it belongs to me. And when I'm engaging with the system and I have a problem, there might be either pseudonymized or genuinely machine learning pseudonymized system data sets that, you know, can extract some of this for research that I might want to grant, you know, access to. There might be different parts of data that I want to give this to but then I go to hospital I go to it and let's say for example the NHS asks me like with blood donor you know blood donations every year what would you like to share with the services you know in the same way that we have a DNR request and we have some very simplistic forms of this in, yeah. in the NHS and I would like to have my preferences that maybe I could work through my family about what we want to see let me give an example right let's say I've been to a sexual health service and I've had something nasty oh, this is not a true story um, and you know my partner goes in and I go into hospital because I hit my head and I me and I'm, I'm unconscious and suddenly they say could, you know to my partner could you explain what happened at the sexual health clinic I'm giving a terrible example here if my partner's listening then it's not true um, but like you know effectively 
I might that there are citizen reasons why I might not want that to be provided. Yeah. And so effectively, what we need is a more sophisticated permission system that allows us to be able to take my data, citizen data, care data and health data. And actually, the next layer of things that we need to have is really thinking about permissions, not the data itself, because the data itself is easy. It's about who should have what when. And we and actually, I think this is where we need to start looking at blockchain and thinking about how we think about data and function and flow and how we start to think about how we can set these because actually the technology is all there that can give us this we just need to move in that direction so but we're being held back by the big systems of course yeah i really like the swallowing example of, of the person in the care home because of course having difficulty swallowing isn't an issue unless it becomes a medical issue mm. however if that data was being recorded by the care home or or the care provider that then becomes data that potentially becomes available to companies that can use the issues with swallowing, maybe if we're talking about tablets or different types of food mm. to develop their product or service based on your issues with swallowing, even though it was never a medical issue until, until you flagged it as a medical issue. I've, that's a really right. fresh perspective. I've not ever thought of that. But this is about choice. And we talk so much in the NHS about choice. But actually, this is this is the I, I hate to use Boris Johnson's term, but this is the level up of choice, really. We need to think more in a more sophisticated way about yeah. choice, because what we're talking about is complex interactions between people, their carers, um, social care, potentially healthcare system. And so what we need to be able to do is in that situation to be able to say a carer says to, uh, to a clinician, I'm slightly worried because they're not eating their food. Maybe they've got the data that says actually that, that they're having to give sip feeds instead of food because of swallowing issues. And then the person would be able to say, hopefully the person would have the cognition say, would it be possible for us to take this piece of data and to be able to just analyze it so we can actually look at it? So it's not a slice of care, it's yeah, real time. It, would it be okay to look at your medicine's adherence? It might be for old and frail patients that they default to this because actually there's a necessity for the intervention. So we think about different people in stages of their life. But actually, with the right technologies, we can absolutely do this. We can absolutely be able to have this permissionless system. And then if we think about pathways, we think about how we can integrate them. And part of that pathway becomes a request. It's push and pull of, of permissions and having sophisticated interactions. But actually, if we're generating this data, then we can do this and it is possible, but we need to make sure that these are linked together. And, you know, that, for example, it might be that people can say, I would like to provide this. Um, you know, there are machine learning things that can effectively take our data and create almost like, I don't know, like the, the AI, you know, where the AI can take 100, 100 images of people and create a brand new face. We can do that with data now. So actually, we can actually do genuine ML driven or AI driven. Um, I can't remember the exact term off the top of my head. Um, I should know it. But, you know, we we can do this now where actually you could have different levels of what data you'd like to give, for example, for research and progress and stuff like that, too, and digital twinning and all of these different things. But it's just about sophistication and we need to move this conversation forward, really. So, yes. So it's time for my last question. You are speeding on your way to Downing Street in a taxi. It's an Uber with Sajid Javid. He's got the wine, you've got the cheese. What are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh, well, what would we not be talking about right now? It's probably, it's probably a big question. Exactly, you're on the way to an illegal party. I exactly. Hope. Why, am, why am I on my way to Downing Street? What do they want me for? I'd probably be asking Savage Javid why I'm, in a, why I'm in an Uber going to Downing Street. That would probably be the first question. Um, I'm going to give you a boring answer because, like, I, I, like all right, so I, 
I'm really anti-sycophancy. So I wouldn't be, you know, I've seen, like, we've had, like, there's, there's actually a DH question, a, a DH interview question, I think, that says, if you were in a link, if you were in a lift with the health secretary, what would you talk about? That's an interview question that Department of Health does. Oh, yeah. God, so, um, so no, no, but it's great. You just, because actually it's real-time question, right? Um, and I think, you know, like, the realistic, I'd probably just talk about the fact that we're from both, that I'm from Bromsgrove, which is his consistency, and have a chat about Bromsgrove, to be honest, because I don't know, like, I've been to enough things at senior politicians and Matt Hancock and so on, and I've seen the kind of level of, like, oh my God, sycophancy. And I just think we should just treat everyone the same, to be honest. So I'd probably just have a chat about something normal if I could. So, you know, we're all citizens, right? I think that you're absolutely right. Um, and I think that um, the Sarge would appreciate your normalcy, <laughs> especially today when he's had a very tough round of interviews about a very challenging subject. <laughs> it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Ella. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for coming on today. I hope you um, have a fantastic Christmas. Do you, Can you give me a spoiler about which um, Star Wars Lego is in the stocking for you, you and your family? Well, we've actually we're actually getting my son a train, uh, uh, one of those moving trains for Christmas. I have not asked for anything, so I would I might get something soon. But um, yeah, we're just do you know what? Actually, this Christmas, I think we're just trying to have an environmentally friendly Christmas. And I've actually asked for donations for charity from my family and stuff because I just I I'm just feeling over consumerist, and I'd like to. This is really boring, of course, but like so, yeah. No, I, I like great. to be honest. I just kind of feel, and my family hates it, but we're just trying to be the change this year. So hopefully, I won't get too much. Plan Plastic. I think we've got enough plastic at the moment, but yeah, maybe a second-hand Lego set might turn up. Who knows? Good. Well, I hope it does. Well, listen, thank you ever so much. No, thanks, Eleanor. I really appreciate the chat. Mm-hmm.